Good morning. Your scripture reading for today is from Matthew 27, 45 through 54. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Johnny did a really lovely video to introduce our speaker today. It was very jolly and very Johnny, but he, he, it's broken. So I'm going to take some of the words that he used in the video and introduce our speaker today. Our speaker is Charles Kaiser, and he and Johnny met at Northern Seminary when they were working on their doctoral work together. And um, Charles is going to come and speak to us, like we've said, about um, religious trauma. One thing that Johnny said in the video that you would have seen but is now broken, that um, Charles really pastored Johnny a lot. Um, in their friendship, not only did they enjoy a lot of friendship together, but Charles really pastored him, and his kindness and his compassion and his wisdom um, was given to Johnny, but in many ways kind of channeled through Johnny to us. Um, so please give a warm welcome to Charles today. Good morning, Missio. I'm really grateful to be here with all of you. I'm really grateful for Johnny and his invitation, um, for our friendship. He is a good human being, and um, I've really uh, enjoyed uh, those times. It surprised me a little bit when he talked about me pastoring him. Because uh, I just felt like we were being friends, um, which I received that. I think that's a, that's a wonderful gift of friendship is the sense of being cared for by each other. Uh, he's a brilliant mind. You probably know that. Uh, and from the way that he talks about you generally, of course, uh, you can, I can tell he really loves you. And I know that you're a gift to him. So all of that just makes me overjoyed to be here. And from the little time I spent with Heather who I want to call HT, because that's what Johnny calls her. Uh, I can tell she's good people too, and you have a gift in her pastoring as well. And good on you for giving her space to rest and Sabbath. Um, I'm also really grateful to be in Salt Lake City. I'm from Texas, and so I, you can hold that against me or love me for it, you know, whatever you need to do. Uh, and as you can imagine, I take every chance. I live in Dallas in the concrete jungle, and I take every chance I can get 
to get into the mountains and the wilderness and the, the landscapes that I'm just not privy to in my uh, geography. So this is my first time in Salt Lake City. And it is, you know, it's like a bucket list thing for me. Yesterday, I hiked up uh, Sunset Peak in Brighton, which was delightful. Uh, and I, I love going to new places because I notice things. I, I, I'm kind of a sociology, anthropology nerd. Um, I like to, I'm fascinated by people, by cultures, by customs. And I just like to, um, to watch and to learn and to compare and being new is the, great, the best time to observe all of the difference. I'll, I'll share one of the things that I noticed. I was on my way to Liberty Park by foot, which is amazing and humongous. Uh, and on the way, I pushed the button for the crosswalk, boop, and I, it's actually lower, boop, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye, what is the deal with the crosswalk flags? Never have I ever seen crosswalk flags before. And immediately, all of these questions are going through my head. Is there some law or ordinance here about carrying flags across the crosswalk? And, and will I get a ticket if I don't carry a flag across the crosswalk? And, and what is the origin story of the, the crosswalk flags? Was there some tragic beginning or did, like the color guard, adopt this intersection? I really, I mean, all of that's going on in the 30 seconds I have to decide, you know, should I take one or not? And uh, I, I end up just, I'm too embarrassed. You know, there's too many risks, there's too many unknowns. And so I cross the crosswalk without the crosswalk flag. And I, I, my head's on a swivel like it usually is, but I'm avoiding making any eye contact because I don't want to get any looks of judgment or shame you know, from anybody in their cars if I'm some, somehow doing something culturally taboo. I even kind of wondered when I got to the other side, I started daydreaming about doing like a, a one-man flash mob flag show for the people parked there waiting for the light, you know, like James Corden style. And it dawned on me, uh, well, I did, I'll, I'll say this, I did some research on the Google, come to find out, and maybe you know this, maybe this is common knowledge in Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City was the first city to adopt crosswalk flags, and uh, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, 2000, the year 2000, and the first city, uh, Given that, uh, that means there are other cities, obviously none of which I've been to, <laughs> that also have crosswalk flags. They, you, you all started a thing, right? And as I reflected on this, it, it occurred to me that those crosswalk flags are really an act of consideration and hospitality for vulnerable pedestrians at busy intersections. And to the extent that that's true, that is a glimpse of God embedded in your city. And I was just so happy to catch it after all of the panic at first, of course, <laughs> trying to figure out if I was going to cross. All right, I'm going to make a hard shift. There's no way for it not to be 
a hard shift. Before shifting to today's topic, I wanted to try to get you to like me a little bit first, which is a problem I have. Uh, Parts of my message today are heavy and painful, and they might stir up some pain in you. And I just want you to know, you have my blessing to do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself in this time, whatever that may be. Uh, I want to share a few of my friends' stories with you, and I do so with their permission, and I'm changing some of the details uh, for their privacy and well-being. Chris grew up in a fundamentalist church in West Texas with a very controlling pastor. And it was the kind of church that had armed guards at the front doors and was like real big into end times prophecies. Um, They were predictions that were based on revelations that were only available to the senior pastor, of course. And they were so committed to the imminent return of Christ that they discouraged young married couples in their church from having children. Because why have children if the Lord is coming back any time now? Uh, Chris says that that kind of heavy-handed environment wasn't the most damaging thing to him about his religious experience there. Most damaging was when this way of viewing the world stopped making sense to him, particularly after a few failed end-time predictions. And Chris decided with his wife that they would leave the church. Uh, When he told his parents, they disowned him immediately. They told him that he was weak and sinful and that he would never see them again. And Chris to this day, has no connection to his family or to any church. He lived in a small town. He had to move away because it was too unbearable to stay there. Uh, He says, it was like the Jenga tower of my life crumbled and I had to put all of the pieces back together again. New friends, new job, new city, new environment, everything had to be put back together together. He had to start completely over. His assumptive world had been shattered. To this day, when Chris hears worship music, his body tenses up and his anxiety rises because he carries that pain in his body. Wendy was raised in a conservative southern homeschooling community that was influenced by the teachings of a guy named Bill Gothard and the Institute of Christian Principles, basic life principles. One of the the concepts that Wendy learned was this idea of the umbrella of protection. It's basically a hierarchy of authority. At the top of the umbrella is God and the pastor, God's representative, and then men and husbands and then women and wives, and then children. And the idea is that each authority figure is an umbrella of protection for those beneath it. And so, uh, fathers are umbrellas for mothers, and, and mothers are umbrellas for children. And if you step out from under that umbrella, 
of protection. Say you're a woman and you step out from under the, the authority of protection of a man, uh, something bad might happen to you. you. You make yourself vulnerable to attack, like from Satan or from evil. But not just that. You make yourself open to punishment from God for violating this hierarchy, this umbrella. Because of this, Wendy grew up feeling like she couldn't trust herself because she was a female. She always had to look to men for answers. It was dangerous to think for herself. And when a man forced her to do something that she didn't want to do, she assumed it was her fault and that, was, and that God was punishing her through that experience. After she left that religious environment in her family, she described feeling panicky and anxious any time she entered a church building for many, many years. Hank grew up in the Midwest in what he describes as a Fox News evangelical church. His dad was the pastor of that church. And Hank, from a very early age, had questions about his sexuality. And when he shared his same-sex attraction with his parents, they told him to keep it a secret. Because if anybody found out, his dad would lose his job. This secrecy and this elevation of money and career above Hank piled on all kinds of shame about his sexuality. His parents helped Hank join a ministry that focused on conversion or reparative therapy, which claimed to repair your sexuality or convert you from gay to straight, from, from same-sex attraction to opposite-sex attraction. And Hank was part of this kind of ministry for about 10 years. And it didn't work for him. In fact, some of the leaders even told him that they never really expected it to work anyway. And so, Hank felt betrayed. He felt deceived. And most heartbreaking of all, he hated himself. Hank left the church in adulthood because the shame and the the self-loathing were just unbearable. These stories describe experiences of spiritual abuse and trauma. My preferred definition of spiritual abuse was developed by a colleague in Dallas who is actually here in Salt Lake City with the Mormon Church for more than 40 years before exiting. Dr. Cindy Matthews defines spiritual abuse as any abuse done in the name of religion or in the name of the deity associated with that religion. At its heart, abuse is a power play. It exists in a power differential with someone who has more power and someone who has less. All abuse is an abuse of power. And so spiritual abuse overlaps with all the other types of abuse, verbal, physical, emotional, psychological, and sexual abuse. 
But spiritual abuse is distinctly at work when those other forms of abuse are ultimately motivated by religion or by God. It can happen in a church service. It can happen in a, in a family. It can happen in a friend group. It can happen uh, in an institution. Anywhere these forms of abuse are motivated somehow in the name of religion or the, the God of that religion. And it's always more painful and more traumatic when it's not just a person who's abusing you, but God who is apparently abusing you, or, or the religious community who you have entrusted yourself to lead you to become closer to God. Spiritual trauma, on the other hand, is the imprint of spiritual abuse that remains in a person's mind, body, or brain. Trauma triggers the, ba- the brain's fight or flight or freeze responses. What happens in trauma is your brain kind of gets stuck. And the traumatic thing that happens to you exists in the eternal present of your mind. You're unable to integrate it as something that happened to me in the past. You're forced to relive it over and over and over again. It's just right there. It's stuck in your brain. Trauma makes some people hypervigilant and anxious. It makes other people disassociate and tune out to protect themselves. And you can see the marks of trauma in the stories that I shared. The way that Chris gets anxious and, and stress rises when he hears worship music. Or, or how Wendy gets panicky when she enters a church building. Or how Hank came to hate himself, a common characteristic of complex trauma, which is trauma that persists over a long period of time. Teresa had two experiences of spiritual abuse and trauma in her youth that led her to leave the church. First was when a good friend died by suicide after being sexually abused by a Catholic priest and a teacher in their school. And the church tried to cover it up. The second was when her college roommate almost died by suicide and then was expelled from their their private Christian university because we don't want those kind of students here. Teresa had always been a believer in the teachings of Jesus about concern for the outside the outsider, the outcast, the poor, the needy. She left the church not because she stopped believing in those things. She left the church because it, it didn't appear the church believed those things. <coughs> Excuse me. These experiences led Teresa to ask hard questions about God, the kind of questions many of us ask when we face unjust suffering and abuse. Listen to what Teresa says. Okay, if God is omnipotent, if God knows everything, if we're all God's children, why would God let this happen? And her conclusion is not favorable. God isn't a benevolent old man. 
He's an absentee father who puts you on earth and then is just like, all right, I'm good, bye. So why should I give the time of day to somebody who didn't look out for my friend, who didn't look out for me, who didn't look out for anybody? Her faith in God collapsed under the weight of those harmful experiences. And notice that she wasn't the direct recipient of abuse in either case, and she was harmed nonetheless. Her her pain, her wounds are no less real because of that secondary experience of abuse and trauma. Perhaps you can identify with one or more of these stories. I can identify, too. Maybe something like this has happened to you or to somebody you love. Maybe you carry the pain of spiritual abuse and trauma. And if that's true, I'm so sorry. I hope today to encourage you. And to do so, I need to wrestle with the questions that Teresa's asking a little bit more. She asks, why God let it happen? She also asks, where is God in my suffering? Where is God? Teresa concludes that God is absent. God is an absentee father who doesn't look out for anybody, she says. Where's God? Well, nowhere close enough to do anything that's helpful, she thinks. Which reminds me of today's story from the Gospel of Matthew. It's Good Friday afternoon. Jesus is hanging from the cross. That cruel torture device of the Roman Empire. The events leading up to his crucifixion had included nearly every conceivable form of abuse, verbal abuse. He was mocked and ridiculed. Physical abuse. He was whipped and beaten. Emotional and psychological abuse. All the gaslighting from the religious leaders seeking to condemn him. Betrayal trauma. His closest disciples, his closest male disciples, I should say, fled the scene. Even sexual abuse, because Jesus was probably hanging naked from the cross, as most people did. All of these forms of abuse were ultimately and simultaneously expressions of spiritual abuse, because they would have never happened had they not been instigated out of the fear and diseased imagination of religious leaders who were threatened by the ministry of Jesus. They instigated Jesus' crucifixion in the name of religion and in the name of their God, at least as they understood God. As Jesus hangs from the cross, barely hanging on to life, he cries out, Why, God? Why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? Where are you, God? Jesus asks the same questions Teresa asks. 
one of the most popular answers to this question in Christian theology was posed by John Calvin. Calvin took a guy named Anselm's idea. Anselm's idea was that in the cross, Jesus satisfies the honor of God. Calvin takes that and tweaks it slightly. Instead of satisfying the honor of God, he understands God to be satisfying his wrath at the cross. So where is God in Jesus' crucifixion? Calvin says God was right there traumatizing Jesus, taking out God's wrath on Jesus. God was the abuser in chief. Is it any wonder then if that is the most popular imagination about the meaning of the crucifixion? Is it any wonder why the church continues to abuse and traumatize people in the name of God? We become like the one we worship, do we not? Elie Wiesel is a Holocaust survivor. And he tells a story in his book, Night, about a time SS officers hanged two Jewish men and a teenager in front of the whole camp in Auschwitz. The older men died quickly, but the younger man, he struggled for almost an hour and a half. And while the camp is watching what's happening, Wiesel hears behind him the voice of someone saying, Where is God? Where is He? After the young man has been hanging from the gallows for a really long, long time, Wiesel hears again behind him, Where is God now? Wiesel writes, I heard a voice inside of myself saying, Where is God? He's here. He is hanging on the gallows. Jürgen Moltmann reflects on this story as a Christian theologian, and he agrees with Wiesel's conclusion. In fact, he goes so far as to say that any other answer for what's happening on the cross is blasphemy. Where is God in the crucifixion? God is on the cross. Jesus is a part of the divine community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God is suffering abuse and trauma. The divine community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, take up abuse and suffering and death within their community, and they absorb the fracture and division and forsakenness that it creates within them. God does not operate with the same logic of the coercive violence of the powers of evil. God operates out of self-emptying love in order to exhaust the powers of sin and death and to exhaust their hold on the cosmos. Each person in the divine community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, freely and willingly participates in this plan. No one is forced. 
No one is sent according to their will, uh, against their will. Well, no one is, is made to do anything. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit collaborate willingly. They enter into abuse and trauma on purpose together for the sake of healing and liberation, for the sake of liberating humanity and the cosmos, for the sake of gaining victory over the powers of sin and death. After three days, God liberates Jesus from abuse and death by raising him back to life. Jesus is a trauma survivor, which means God is a trauma survivor. Each year during Holy Week, theologian Serene Jones uh, and her church hosts a passion play which depicts Jesus' betrayal and trial and crucifixion. And she's surprised one year when a group of four women from the self-defense class that was meeting up at the church building show up all of a sudden to this passion play. And immediately she's concerned because she knows they all have histories of violence in their lives. And she's concerned that they might be re-traumatized by what they see. After the play, one of the women from the class named Mary approached Jones and said, this cross story, it's the only part of the Christian thing that I like. I get it. And it's like he gets me. He knows. Judith Herman is a trauma expert who's known for her work in trauma recovery. She says the most important element in the process of healing from abuse and trauma is the presence of an empathetic witness, a witness with empathy who can create an environment of safety where that story that is stuck in the eternal present of our minds can be pieced back together because traumatic memory is often fragmented. It can be pieced back together and integrated as something that happened in the past. And when that happens, it can be mourned. It can be healed. It can be freed up from. In the end, the gospel story today reveals that Jesus is exactly this kind of witness to our pain and our wounds. Jesus is that empathetic witness. Jesus is the witness who, with empathy and compassion, sees our wounds and our hurts, who witnesses it so that we can heal. Where is God in our experience of spiritual abuse and trauma? Hear the good news. God is with us. God is near. God, Father, Son, and Spirit suffers with us. God sees us. God witnesses our pain with compassion. God shares solidarity with us as a survivor of spiritual abuse and trauma. And God's resurrection of Jesus 
reveals that abuse and trauma don't have the last word. While the wounds of Jesus' crucifixion are not erased by the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection shows that healing and liberation is possible. Those wounds, those scars of trauma become witnesses themselves to the liberating, healing work of God in the world. God is liberating us. God is healing us. Can you believe it? Can you receive it? Amen. Thanks, Charles. As we come to the table and receive communion, um, it's this picture of Christ's presence with us, body and blood, tangible um, expression of Jesus' witness. And so before we do that, I just want you to close your eyes if you feel comfortable and just take a deep breath. There may be stories that you're aware of stories that you've absorbed. I just want you to take a deep breath. Now breathe it out. Take another deep breath. And breathe it out. And then you are invited to come to this table. You're also invited to come and receive prayer. Have somebody physically present with you and receive the presence of Christ. Let's pray. Spirit, thanks that you care for us and that you see us and thanks for the things that Charles has named. Thanks that you don't abandon us and leave us alone, but you understand suffering and you understand pain and you speak back to us in that. You help us to collect the story so that we can mourn it and grieve it and be healed. Not scarless, but healed. And so I pray this morning that that would be a part of collecting those stories and that it would move us closer to places of wholeness, which is always your intention for us. So we trust ourselves to you. Amen. Amen.